This is a, a recent Gizmodo article that says all of the creepy things Facebook knows about you. Obviously, it's like they know your location, your age, your gender, language, all that, that stuff. An interesting one on here, square footage of your home. Users in a long distance relationship. Mothers divided by type, as in soccer or trendy. <laughs> Talk about uh, really dividing the country. You want people to abandon Facebook to start calling them soccer moms. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 145 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer back in our normal seats. Yeah, well, if you call our seats normal. Uh, but yeah, in, in our respective cities across the country from one another. Yeah, we've we've been on the road the last, uh, gosh, last couple of months, I guess, kind of in and out and at some different conferences that, that you all have heard us talk about over the uh, previous uh, episodes. Getting towards the end, we're, we're on the holiday slide at this point. So, but we've got a good one. We got a good one today. Actually, the, the interview comes from one of those recent conferences. But uh, before we get too far down the track, wanted to point out just a couple of things. Touchpoint.health, the website. Rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. We do appreciate all the support. All the show hosts appreciate the support. A quick plug for the podcast intersection that's on the Touchpoint Network. After a hiatus is back with a new episode. So be able sure to jump out there again, touchpoint.health. Check out intersection and all the other shows. Uh, sign up for the TPS report and all that kind of fun stuff. So let's uh, take a brief pause and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. You mentioned prior to the break, at one of our recent conferences, in particular the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network Conference, we actually had a very lively debate at one point at the end of the day about the validity of using Facebook as a hospital or a health system. And be on the lookout for that. I think uh, after talking to Lee, Lee AC there at the Mayo Clinic, he has some video from that that I believe uh, may get published. So we'll we'll be sure to, to point to that on our social networks uh, when, that's, uh, when that's out and about. But uh, yeah, that was fun. It was, but it really brought up the idea that it was great that we were actually able to have an uh, conversation about the validity or the veracity of using Facebook as a hospital or health system, that led us to think about, well, we, this is a topic we need to explore a little bit further. You should abandon it. I'm sorry, I got a little <laughs> ahead of myself there. Um, it, it was an interesting debate, and we're, we're not going to kind of go back and forth on the pros and cons necessarily of should you, shouldn't you, you know, all that kind of good stuff. To kind of level set, talk uh, definitionally, definitional, is that a word? 
the definition of, I don't know, of what a social platform actually is, because that's what we're talking about specifically Facebook today. We may touch on a couple of others, but but kind of honing in on Facebook. You found a site here, techopedia.com. So we've moved away from Wikipedia. We're getting really specific now in Techopedia. <laughs> uh, but a social platform is a web-based technology that enables the development, deployment, and management of social media solutions and services provides the ability to create social media websites and services with complete social media network functionality. Well, that's kind of general, complete social media network functionality. Uh, Assumptively, that's like things like sharing of content, adding friends, setting privacy controls, other types of things like that. And in, in the case of Facebook, you know, you're able to give feedback, right? You can rate and review businesses, you can comment on things, but there's a there's a networking network community aspect to the platform. And it reminds me of the way old, old days, maybe about 10 years ago. Do you remember they used to have social media platforms in a box where you could actually, you know, remember the Ning community? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like kind of like build your own social network kind of a thing. It's interesting, right? I don't know the right answer on like why that did or didn't work necessarily. But, but yeah, they did have it. It's amazing. Long time ago. I think part of the reason why it didn't succeed as much as it did is because it was hard to generate such a large audience, such a large number of users. Facebook is such a prominent platform, and that's because there are so many people using it. Exactly right. And that's part of the argument on the pro side, again, not to get into a debate here, but the idea is like, well, as marketers or as, as maybe broader as a business you know, you have to be there because that's where all the people are, right? You know, don't go build an app. Don't go do these things. Go where the people are versus trying to drive adoption, which is one of the harder things, especially in healthcare. Certainly, if you're a big consumer brand, Nike, Apple, et cetera, building apps and driving adoption is a little bit easier because you already have the brand equity. But that kind of brings us to this first, this first article that you found, culturehub.com, is Facebook getting too big? Why their monopoly isn't good for the internet is the name of the article. The article starts out talking about the growth of Facebook. As it's growing, it actually, Zuckerberg and all the people running the platform have done changes and have done things as we've all heard about in all the news, you know, not only meddling with elections, they've been running social experiments on the users. They've been trying to figure out how to deliver ads in a different way. And sometimes they haven't been too honest about it. And all of these things they're doing in order to kind of bolster the size and the the interests of their communities. But the problem is it's growing so fast. Even the people that are actually setting the rules for the government pretty much don't really know what to do with such a big platform. We talk about this as it relates to hospitals even, about technology outpacing compliance or outpacing the law, specifically HIPAA. This is a good example of their growth or success outpacing their ability to, to kind of keep up with expectations. I want to believe that, that at least in, in some sense, in the beginning, you know, or what have you, no one's trying to necessarily trick anybody, but things kind of get so far ahead. You know, you kind of lose control to some degree, right? Things get out in front of you. It starts going so fast. Uh, like all the stuff with the with the last election, it's not like they set out to do that, but they didn't have the right things in place to prevent it either. So like, where's the responsibility and should they, shouldn't they? And so to their point, this thing is getting so large like, you know, does the government get involved? I mean, they're, you know, to a private business, like where, where does stuff start and stop? Anyway, it's just, it becomes a very large conversation that that's almost hard to have. The other part of it getting so big that is kind of complicated. Facebook also has this, this tendency to grow by acquiring different types of technologies, different types of companies, you know, the WhatsApp acquisition or uh, the things that they, they did around Instagram. And, and, you know, they're, they're really so big that they can actually grow by just go buying their competition, which is really is cause con- for concern of like, are they growing to be sort of a monopoly social media network? I'm not sure we can say that. Although, you know, I play Monopoly, and that would be kind of cool to go to a Monopoly social network to talk about the game Monopoly. Uh, a recent opinion piece in the New York Times by the co-founder of Facebook, a guy named Chris Hughes, 
Uh, if anybody has seen The Social Network. Is that what that movie was called? The Social Network? He, he's calling for the breakup of Facebook's monopoly over the social media industry. First off, I'm not exactly sure how that would even work. Like, what are we breaking up exactly? I mean, are we just pulling Instagram and WhatsApp and stuff back out of it? But anyway, but he's talking about, the, you know, Facebook has a certain level of dominance in, in what he claims is an unfair way. Well, there was somebody before them MySpace and Friendster and you know those types of things, and they made the better version. I, I think it's naive to think that like there's not going to be a next one. That might be hard for us to say because, quite frankly, it's all about the users and the adoption of the users. And there were times you and I talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Th- there was a time where we thought Snapchat really had a run because it was attracting that younger audience. Yeah, and we thought, oh, look out for Snapchat. Well, now we're talking about it's TikTok. Look out for TikTok, right? Because there's so many people using it. What is the tipping point when a, a social media platform becomes too big? I would argue that it's if if people start to adopt it and more people flock over to one platform over the other, that could potentially set the tipping point. And who knows, in five years, we may not have Facebook anymore. I don't know that we will necessarily. And I know about five years. I think that's the interesting part is, is the time frame piece of it. But I think users, you said it earlier, I think users in the way people expect to participate online is that evolves. These platforms that were built a certain way are going to have a hard time keeping up, right? I think what's interesting to me are things like TikTok, where I'm sitting there going, didn't we already do this in this Vine or Musical.ly or whatever it was called? That's what's interesting to me. And so some of this is about timing. Like we've done some of these things before, but because of the time and place and who was using it, it didn't work. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see what comes back around conceptually, what comes back around, not the actual platform in, in name. You know, I mean, I don't think we'll see Vine again, for example. But in any case, it is big. I don't know how you break it up. If it's not them, it's somebody else. I, I just, I don't know how we judge unfair advantage. The, the whole thing is, Zuckerberg keeps saying, right, he's building this community and he's building things to support the community. All the different features and functionalities are designed to support that community of users. But that's that kind of that weird balance. And I think it was brought up in the debate. If it's free to use the platform, you are the product. That's the whole that's the whole point. So then all of you, your data, everything becomes what they're what they broker in. And so it's no wonder that Facebook continues to go out there and do things that get into controversial topic. Again, the the election, you're right. It's there's a little nuance there. They weren't really highly regulating their advertising platforms. And guess what? Other people exploited that and they took advantage of that. That happens. It happened to Google. It happens to, you know, traditional media too. Yeah, it'll happen everywhere. I mean, that that's just a part of, you know, that, that's just where we are. And again, that was them getting out in front of, you know what, we've got to figure out how to make money. Because again, you get what you pay for. Like none of us are paying for Facebook. Like this, it doesn't individually. Uh, businesses certainly running ads and things like that. So, you know, they've got to turn uh, a profit. They've got to make money. Uh, otherwise, they can't employ the people that work there at some point, which is maybe why Snapchat is where it is. But anyway, you know, another article you found here, who can stop Facebook is kind of the flip side of this. Who can stop Facebook? And this is actually a discussion on University of Pennsylvania Wharton. They had actually a conversation with a venture capitalist, Roger McNamee. He was an early investor in Facebook. And he actually says at one point he, he, was, he mentored Mark Zuckerberg. He says the actual platform itself, this is something that's not unique to Facebook. It's an industry-wide problem. The business model of building a social network has been so successful that they actually get big and now suddenly they are part of i guess what he calls the public square in every democracy yeah he talks in here about that that that's unhealthy because they're not elected they're not accountable you know there's no regulatory restraint and ultimately there's no government that's in a position to change the behavior of the companies what do you do with that (laughs) you know he outlines four problems that kind of arise from social networks that get so big. The first one relates to public health because these products actually manipulate attention. And we've heard a lot about that. You and I have talked about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The second is it's about democracy. These products essentially allow politics to change 
from politicians persuading us to now using the advertising tools to manipulate us, which kind of really squarely hits the whole Cambridge Analytica issue on the head, which was a kind of interesting. The third is, uh, he talks about his privacy. I mean, we've talked about privacy a million times. I mean, you heard us joking around about it at the at the top of this episode of, of some of the things that Facebook knows about you. And, and I think I've said this before, no reveal have said this before, but privacy at this point is an illusion. Like there is no privacy. It's scary to think about the things that we've done in our lives that there's not record of, but that there will ultimately be record of. You, you know what I'm saying? Like you just think that there's some certain level of privacy at some point in the future. And I'm not saying it's nefarious things necessarily, but it's just things that you don't think about that, you know, there probably is a way that that gets surfaced at some point, even though the internet didn't even exist at that point or, you know, whatever it may be. The last thing he talks about is how it's just natural that if you get this big, you as a company start to act like a monopoly. And and I thought that was a really fascinating insight, right? It's impossible to do a startup today to compete against people like Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And that's just the, the way it is, right? And and he, had, he outlines a couple of ways that we have to think about doing things a little bit differently. We won't get into all the details. Look for it on our show notes and click through and read about it. It's really fascinating. But Reed, let's after the break, let's jump, let's come back and let's talk a little bit about some of the ways Facebook is getting into the healthcare space, like some of the things that they are doing. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right. So like you mentioned before the break, let's jump in and talk a little bit about Facebook as it relates to healthcare. Uh, not hospitals necessarily, but but healthcare in general. So we're seeing not just Facebook, but that's kind of what we're talking about today. Uh, these different platforms honing in on health and healthcare and wellness and kind of however you want to shape that that piece, I guess. There's lots of different ways that's happening. So let's touch on a few of those. And then uh, we've got, uh, I guess, kind of their most recent announcement that we'll we'll touch on as well. Absolutely. There is an article that we'll link to in the show notes about how Facebook and Twitter are reacting to their glowing, growing influence on health. One of the big things, though, that they said is that a big part of this is the influence it has, these social networks have on their communities. As we've heard often, distribution of false information is like probably one of the most important things. And there's so many articles about how it's so hard to manage this. And Facebook constantly tries to, um, you know, stop all false health information. They actually try to stop all non-true information being disseminated. But it's like whack-a-mole in the space, right? Well, I mean, here's, you know, here's a headline from Fast Company. Uh, a shockingly large majority of health news shared on Facebook is fake or misleading. The Foreign Policy Journal, Facebook fact checker, misinforms user about vaccine safety. See Psychology Today or Facebook's suicide prevention tactics misguided. And another one here from the Washington Post headline, teen who defied anti-vax mom says she got false information from one source, Facebook. Clearly, we know. I see it even today when I was on Facebook, and I don't go on Facebook that often, but I saw some information about anti-vax, and I was like, really? Like, they don't even know my profile enough to give me true information about vaccinations. They give me anti-vax stuff. But that's out there. It's being shared by people. That's one thing. And I think a lot of that news is being shared by the users. But there's other things that, that Facebook is doing that is actually deliberately trying to get in that space. One of the things is where Facebook try to assess people's users' emotions and use it to try to persuade if they can present positive information to people, maybe help influence people that are potentially suicidal 
to not be suicidal, to give them more happy messages on Facebook and kind of not bring up in their newsfeed the negative stories. Now, that makes me feel a little bit weird. How do you feel about that? The whole thing's weird. And just it's, it's just all a big manipulation of reality. I mean, we do it individually already, right? I mean, it's a curated... Uh, sorted, you know, view of our, our our life. It's not actually what's happening. Then you layer this on top of that, and uh, there's just nothing real about it, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy that they're in there doing that. And I know there was a big backlash when it happened a couple of years ago, but they're still out there actively trying to make your news feed a little bit more of a happier place because they want to trick the serotonin. They want to they want to trick that in your brain so that it's happy. So you keep coming back to Facebook. That's kind of weird and creepy, but I guess it supports their bottom line, right? Yeah, and that's that's ultimately what we're doing. We're trying to stay in business. Can you blame them is the point. No. I wouldn't want to go to Facebook if it's all bad news. In fact, a lot of people left Facebook. We talked about this at the beginning of the year when that study came out, the Mary Meeker Internet study. The reason why people are leaving Facebook so quickly is because of all the negativity around politics. Well, what are they, they? I would be invested to make that a happy place to go. The good news is they also own the property everybody went to. So, you know, it's kind of win-win. <laughs> yeah, they're just shifting audience. But anyway. The other thing, too, is because of their data issue, they're sharing data with other apps and they're getting data from other apps. And one of the big things, there was an article in the Washington Post a couple months ago that actually highlighted the fact that Facebook, by tracking women's period tracking apps is now using that data to predict the last time you had sex. That's crazy. There's probably no end to what they can predict, uh, know about, you know, et cetera. And then just recently they launched a preventative care tool. I think this is an interesting look into, in this case, again, Facebook on, on how they're trying to participate in kind of this growing idea of healthcare and wellness and all that kind of good stuff, right? So it's really what it's done is that they've introduced a new consumer health tool that's meant to incentivize users for taking like preventative care measures. So, I mean, you're giving them more information and they will recommend, they give you recommendations. It says here around like heart, cancer, flu, preventative type stuff. Of course, they say they're not going to use any of the personal health information, their PHI, generated by the pilot for targeted advertising. Man, could you imagine what you could target if you, <laughs> if you do all this <laughs> stuff? <laughs> anyway, so I, I think that that's interesting, right? Because at the service level, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. I mean, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Let's... Um, if I had a way to, you know, from more of a predictive analytics type fashion, help me be smarter about my health, you know, wouldn't I do that inside of a uh, platformer experience that I already use daily, you know, et cetera. Like, you know, you can make the kind of case for it. And get this, Reed, they partnered with some pretty prestigious organizations, the American Cancer Society, the Association of Cancer Care, the American Heart Association, and the Centers for Disease Control are behind this new platform that they launched. Now, to me, I can look at that in two different ways. Like, wow, like what a great thing. All of these great organizations that are meant to do positive things in health are partnering with Facebook. But on the flip side... It's on Facebook. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. It makes me nervous, right? So they quote a lot, uh, some, some comments here from Freddie Abnusi. He's the uh, Facebook's head of healthcare. You know, one of the things he mentions in here is he says, we never see any of your healthcare stuff. This is simply taking information, making it understandable, and delivering it to the user and people across Facebook. What do you mean they never see our healthcare stuff? <laughs> That's an interesting comment to me. I've heard uh, Freddie Abnusi talk a number of times and I uh, saw him interviewed on a second opinion, uh, a Senator Bill Frist podcast. Very smart guy. But that's, that's an interesting comment to me. If they did clarify that if a user liked the American Cancer Society's page or accessed other unrelated health pages, 
that information would continue to inform advertising. So, of course, it's linked to advertising. I mean, it is Facebook. Third-party apps, both inside and outside the healthcare ecosystem, already willingly share information with Facebook. So this is naturally kind of the extension of that. But, you know, it's kind of one of those weird things. But Facebook is a for-profit company. So can we blame them for wanting to advertise better? No. I mean, again, I kind of go back to like, you know, the privacy is the illusion thing. So if we can get it to a place that at least I'm seeing stuff that's interesting to me, that's a better experience at least. I would agree with you on that. But I do have to say that even though they're doing that, and by the way, they're they're going to spend six to 12 months evaluating this trial. They're only doing it for heart disease, cancer, and flu. But as they're expanding it, they're going to expand it to other preventable conditions. So this is just the start of how Facebook's actively moving into preventable care and healthcare. And I know that this topic is very, very nuanced. It's not black or white. And in the interview we're going to do with Dr. Ferris Tamimi, a good friend of ours with the Mayo Clinic, he and I had a good conversation recently. We sat down and we talked about Facebook itself. We kind of covered some of the main points within the debate we had. And then uh, you know, just kind of talked through a various other uh, aspects of this nuanced conversation. So what do you say? Should we uh, just send them over to that after the break? Take away, Ferris. All right. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And I am sitting down with a good colleague, friend, uh, someone that I've known for many years, Ferris Tamimi. I, I looked back at our records. It was a year ago uh, that you were on the show last time um, because we met up at the Mayo Clinic social media conference. Yeah, and now you're back. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. It's very kind of you. Oh, we, we would have you back more often. You're as very kind. Frequently as you very want kind. to. So thank you for being here. Ferris, for those people who may not have gone back to the annals of our podcast and listened, can you give them a brief introduction about I you? I would be happy to. So I, I'm at the Mayo Clinic. I've been here for 22 years. My clinical practice is predominantly advanced and stage heart failure, so the pre-transplant population uh, within cardiology. And also serve as the enterprise lead for the Mail Clinic social media network, which looks at enterprise applications of social media in domains of healthcare research, healthcare practice, and education, a resource allocation and strategic application of the digital era. Yeah, and I think that's it's really great that there's a, a person that has that clinical background, right? That that provider background that's actually informing social media and informing how the enterprise Mayo Clinic. Is, is utilizing many different applications. It's something that's kind of rare. I think it is rare, but I, I have to say that I, I'm so pleased we partnered with Lee Acey, whom you know as well. And I think Lee and I work really well together. Lee brings technical expertise that I lack in, in the digital domain, and I bring clinical applications. In essence, I, I speak the clinician's language and can engage with them. And our experience has been that it takes both elements to be successful. I also would point out that the enterprises that do not have these tools in place do themselves a disservice. Right. Put themselves at significant risk. As we've talked about before, and as you pointed out before, mm-hmm. if you don't have resource allocation, orientation, guidelines, and training, you have staff who are participating but without input and supervision. It puts you at risk. That's right. It's like that perfect dyad partner, right? Absolutely. You, you have Lee as the business partner and you as the and that and that together actually creates a, a really good unity for the strategies that you do. And that's one of the reasons why Mayo is so high esteemed with their No, it's very kind of you. I, but I'm, I'm, I have to say, a uh, plug for Lee, he's just yeah. an absolute delight to work with. Yeah. Well, you are too. Yes, very kind. <laughs> but uh, today we're going to be talking about something that actually stemmed from a, a I would call it a heated debate that we had last night at the conference. We were brought together. You were part of a panel session. I was happened to be lucky to be the moderator. Where we were discussing about the... The I, I don't know how to say it the right way, but maybe the veracity of Facebook and and the responsibility of using Facebook as a health system in this day and age. Really trying to take a close look at um, Facebook as an application, a business application. No, I think I think it's an apt summary, Chris. I, I think many enterprises are are at a nexus of decision regarding Facebook, mm-hmm. and I think this reflects the the growing recognition that the affinity data they collect may not be collected transparently. The algorithm used, used particularly for groups may not promote input and material from the users in a fashion that is, that is transparent or germane to the individual user. Mm-hmm. And given that, that public recognition, I think there's been some recognition on the part of enterprises 
that this may be a tool that has significant application and significant risk. And I don't think people have, have, are very clear on how to address that. And I'll, I'd also say that it's really important to recognize we would not have had this debate three to five years ago because this was not a concern we had three to five years ago. Right. Three to five years ago, it would have been more of an issue of why are you not participating? Why are you not on Facebook? Mm -hmm. Why are you not dedicating more resources to Facebook application? Mm -hmm. And now it's a question of what should we do next? And I think it's it's a question that many people have to deal with and face on a regular basis. Facebook is getting a lot of press around anytime they do anything. And I would say that maybe the, the press is either positive or negative, but we certainly hear about it. I mean, it started with their utilization of data there, and, and it's also the way they're actually using um, the the users, using the users, that's probably the right way to say it, with various different experiments they're doing around their behaviors, understanding where they're coming from. So the debate yesterday kind of really addressed some of those points, and I want to get into those. You, you were actually given the task of defending one point over the other, right. but you were very nuanced in your in your report out, so I thought it would be great for us to talk about that because you can give sort of that nuance. No, I appreciate that. I think there are multiple issues at hand. One, there is affinity data being collected, but there isn't all platforms. Mm -hmm. Two, Facebook is a corporate entity. Their fiduciary responsibility over, overpowers any moral responsibility they have to the users. And three, they do not do an apt job at advising users what rights they're transferring to Facebook when they participate in the platform. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I don't think that means that we can't use the tool at all. I think it means we need to do a better job educating our patients. We need to be more cautious and strategic in how we use Facebook. We also need to be cognizant that it is the dominant platform on the planet. Right. If time spent on mobile device, it's one to four to one to five minutes. It's the third largest country on the planet by population alone. Yeah. And I think given that large mass of individual engagement and the time engagement, it really bespeaks the opportunity. For example, you, you mentioned the experiments they conducted. So they, they did an experiment in the 2010 midterm election mm -hmm. where they randomized news feeds for people who were logging in on Facebook on an election day to one of three platform views. The first was the standard view. This is Facebook, this is your news feed. The second was a, a news feed that said, today is election day. The third was a news feed that said, today is election day. Here are your friends who have indicated they have voted today. Mm -hmm. And the latter group had a 2% higher voter turnout rate in those counties. Now 2% may not sound like a lot, but given the low voter, voter turnout rate in the United States, that's a powerful impact. Consider what we can achieve in metrics of, of healthcare maintenance, of breast screening for, for our patients who are at risk from breast cancer, colon screening for screening for hypertension, for kidney disease, hepatitis, for populations who are at risk. I, I think that those experiments highlight both the, the, the challenge of Facebook, they, they may not do that transparently, right. but also the opportunity for us in healthcare to explore using those tools strategically. You know, it reminds me, the other day I was um, refilling my prescription uh, through my pharmacy, and when I did that, they actually said, well, I can't refill your prescription, something I standardly take as a type 1 diabetic, right. until you have an appointment with your doctor. Wow. Right at the point in time, I, I I mean I understand it working in the this industry. Right, I understand the need for me to have regular checkups, and 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 yes, I knew I was neglecting making that follow up appointment. But I felt at that point in time like I was being held hostage. Right, and I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way to influence my behavior. And what you just pointed out with what Facebook's experiment around uh, elections. Right. By the way, interesting. That wasn't really brought up. There was a lot of other election-related news around Facebook. No, I agree. I right? Agree. But that one wasn't really highlighted to the top. But that shows that Facebook really is, can be used as a platform to motivate and, and shift patient behavior, right? Oh, think about domains like vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. Think about if, if when you hit a certain age where you require health screening, mm -hmm. you get a notification on Facebook. If your friends have indicated in the last year they've had that age metric, mm -hmm. and they've chosen to get screened. 2% mm -hmm. may not sound like a lot, but for vaccine hesitancy, for compliance with colon cancer screening, for compliance with mammography, those, mm -hmm. those are powerful numbers. Those are lives we can intervene on and save. Right. And, and the cost of doing so is not significant. Boosting on Facebook is not terribly expensive. Mm -hmm. and again, I'm, I'm not here to defend Facebook yeah. as, <laughs> as an entity of, of good. I'm saying this is simply a tool. And like any other tool, it has risks and benefits. Mm -hmm. And if we are careful and strategic and use it correctly and use it only for the opportunities we've, we've highlighted, mm -hmm. I think there's value. I, th I, think, I think Colleen, who, whom was delightful on the panel yes. as well, pointed out some real flaws regarding groups. I think flaws that are, that are really well 
important for us to recognize. Right. But again, it doesn't preclude us exploring that opportunity, but we need to be doing a better job as healthcare advocates and social media and ensuring that our patients and their care providers are educated correctly. And Colleen also mentioned the fact that, you know, there's a certain aspect of what Facebook does that gets people to participate. It's kind of tra- the endorphin trigger, right? She mentioned that. And, um, and I've read about that, and that applies to a lot of different things, including your phone, including, you know, your iPhone or whatever it may be. What's your perspective on that? I mean, that, that an endorphin trigger triggering some happiness, driving people to want to participate. I, at one hand, I see that that's a positive thing. But on the other hand, I could see that that could very quickly become a non-positive thing. No, I, I agree. And I, I think it was really quite telling when we surveyed the audience. Individual use of Facebook has gone down among the people yeah. who are attending. Yeah. And that's for me. That's true for me as well. I use Facebook less now than I did five years ago. Is there anything wrong with that gamification? Again, what is Facebook's responsibility? Mm-hmm. Their responsibility is to serve their shareholders and corporate supporters aptly. They have a fiduciary responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. They're not here to do good. Mm-hmm. No, no, no for-profit corporation is. That's true. As a for-profit entity, that's their obligation. So they are going to place gamification tools within it to, to enhance that endorphin rush as you allude to. Right. It's, is it a good thing? Probably not a good thing. Is it something that I'm going to want to explore using clinically, perchance, mm-hmm. as an application? Mm-hmm. Is it something that's going to impact my behavior on the platform? I still use it less than I did five years ago, but there still is an enterprise opportunity in Facebook. Right. Purely as a product of the engagement that occurs among our population. The focus of the conversation was around how we as health organizations, Precisely. providers or whatever, are actually utilizing these tools in a responsible way. Right. That's really what we were trying to get at. Right. But yet... Um, we also find that you know one of the points that was brought up from from the audience was, well, our audience is there, and it's going to be really hard to kind of divert them off of that platform. So while even while there may be some of that evilness, so to speak, quote unquote, of the platform, they're still there, and so it's hard to move them away from those and create our own different platforms. No, I, I, think, I think I think that's that's a perfect point, Chris. I think eyeballs on site. Yeah. Uh, for whatever metric we're talking about, for clinical practice, for research, even theoretically for education, mm-hmm. eyeballs on site are hard for us to, to replace. And unless someone in attendance is going to get the funding to set up a separate platform to compete directly, right? I, I don't think we're going to be moving away from Facebook from, from an enterprise perspective. I think it just has to be strategic in how we use it. Mm-hmm how we choose to use it, mm-hmm. and how we ensure that our patients are well-educated. That's our obligation. Right. That's, that's our job. Right. Well, everybody signs up for user agreements anyway. Right. right? But, but we can do a better job <laughs> as our patient advocates, uh-huh. ensuring they understand what they're participating Correct. in. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's that's part of our, our moral imperative to do. If we're going to be practicing healthcare using a variety of third-party tools, which we are, and as digital people, we are. It's... Google is the same way, and and oh, you know, well said. That's right. Perfect. Perfect. Right. It's a perfect point. And so, even our websites, we are tracking data, and Google is tracking that data, and it's tying it to longitudinal data about the users and drawing those parallels and providing that information back to you. Now, as a marketer, I'm really I like that data. That's very helpful because for me, it allows me to do better targeting and better segmentation. Yet. You know, on the other hand, it could very lead to that very much uh, the slippery slope. No, I agree. But but I have to ask you, Chris, you've been in marketing for a long time. Affinity data is not new. No. I mean, it, it existed before the digital era. It did. When we had Nielsen boxes and Nielsen ratings, people were collecting affinity data in that era as well. So this is not a new conversation. Right. It's the nexus between healthcare and the moral responsibility of the patient. Now that we met using third-party tools, it becomes the nuanced conversation. But this is, this is a long-standing debate. Right. And, but I think that the, where it gets con- a little colluded is obviously the users that are on these platforms, our patients or prospective patients, the general user audience, not us that understand sort of the nuances. Right. They're not very familiar with uh, some of the things that could potentially go right or wrong. Then they hear stories like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and others where Facebook is brokering our data, which they have every right to do. Um, but they get a little bit nervous, particularly when we they start brokering it to uh, organizations that may have nefarious purposes. I brought up the fact that Facebook has apps on their on that they work with third party companies that have apps on their site where you can track period data and you can track right. your, you know your rates. Yet what they're doing is they're aligning that data around when you're tracking to uh, infer your sex habits. That suddenly crosses that line, right? And so. I, I feel that Facebook, as a as a 
that a future forward thinking organization as they should be tend to be abutting against that line a lot. No, I agree. But then, as you've alluded to, so does Google. They yeah. know more about bad behavior than anyone on planet Earth. <laughs> so true. Where I want to eat, where I've dined, where I want to stay, when I travel. Mm-hmm. My search history is meticulous collect, meticulously collected <laughs> and has significant affinity uh, data associated with it they, that I'm positive they sell. Mm-hmm. Yet I don't do private browsing that often, do you? No. That's the issue. Right. I think you made it. I mean, the point you make is very clear. Everyone is collecting affinity data. Right. Our obligation is to make sure that our patients are well advised and that we choose these tools for the right opportunity. Perhaps it's not the best place to host groups, mm-hmm. but that may be not the best location to host your groups. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it should be on Facebook. Right. It just means that since the Facebook algorithm promotes their material to the top of a group and it doesn't, doesn't archive beyond 30 days, maybe that's not where you want to put your group. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to have patient, intimate communication. It should be in a separate platform. So I think that's part of our job. I mean, mm-hmm. our job is to direct our patients to the right digital location. That's correct. And choose the right tool for opportunity. Right. And Facebook is one of those tools. It's included okay, here, here's a question. Yeah. Do you, do you still think of Facebook as clearly a social media play in the current era? How do you view Facebook? Well, I think, I, and, and that's a good question to have. It's interesting to have the interviewer Sorry. <laughs> reverse the question at me. But I actually see, though, that Facebook has become a little bit more than just a, a, a social media platform. Right. And not only that it includes Instagram and WhatsApp and it's like a bar, large ecosystem, it's almost become now something that's, that needs a new categorization because there are so many people on it. But, right. but, and Google is of, of that ilk as well because Google is one of those platforms as well. And I would argue that maybe even Amazon and others are there. For us as healthcare you know, professionals, um, one of the things we were talking about is, do we actually have the, the, the ability to kind of work with these companies to say, here's a better way to apply these tools? Uh, you know, Zuckerberg is very, very interested in building out more affinity groups around healthcare and have those conversations. Yet yesterday we shared that, you know, that data may not be very useful for those people that are actually delivering that, you know, collecting and acting on that data. Correct. And so do we as healthcare professionals, is it our right now or our responsibility to kind of work with these third-party companies and help them improve their product better? Well, we're giving them proprietary information by doing so, right? Yeah. Without receiving financial remuneration whatsoever. Right. But I, I do think we have an obligation to give them input, but I also think we have an obligation to move our patients to different platforms to, for different That's opportunities. True. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the idea, but you're right. It, it is. It has evolved into an ecosystem. It really has. It's like another home. It is. I have, I have friends who live within that platform. Mm-hmm. I, my, my family lives in that platform. But they search within it. They find recommendations yep. within it. They have conversations within it. They socialize. They also shop within it as well. Right. And that's not to say that we, as working with these, working with Facebook and other, Google and others, we actually can get some of that affinity data ourselves and use that. Now, I want to kind of pivot to that question because as a digital expert in this field, that affinity data is very useful for us in terms of planning our strategies and activities. How, how would you recommend that we as organizations kind of walk that line of making sure we're using that data for the right purposes and not start to you know get into maybe some of those things that might get a little bit against pri- patient privacy? Yeah, that's That's... <laughs> An incredibly nuanced question. <laughs> in essence, what you're saying is, how do you let someone know that you have access to their data and not be intrusive in doing so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you've been searching a lot about uh, about colon cancer. Yep. Here's some polyp information from Mayo Clinic. I would find that offensive if I were a patient. Yeah. So I that, that kind of boosted content I think is is problematic within healthcare, mm-hmm. just as it's viewed as push media and, and other domains. Right. I mean, no one, no one wants that anymore. They, they want the pop-up blocker to be applied to all ecosystem platforms. So I don't think that has comparable application within Facebook for healthcare. I think it's problematic. Mm-hmm. I think consumer behavior from a research perspective is fascinating. Yes. So I would, I would suggest that as a potential research opportunity, if we can, for example, look at adverse drug reactions, which are collected in a very strategic and meticulous fashion in the United States. They have to be reported to the, to the, F, to the Food and Drug Administration through a closed platform site that requires you share your identity when you post that information. Hmm. You have to log into FDA and say, I've had an ADE. Here's my name, my contact information. Here's the ADE that I have, which, which limits the number of people who do it. Think about all the ADE ADE data that's available within Facebook, for example. Mm -hmm. If we could identify early signals of an adverse drug reaction within Facebook, why would we not want to do so? 
That's not intrusive. That's the identified data. But we could suddenly learn that Valsartan, for example, which is used for high blood pressure, mm -hmm. is associated with uh, an atypical rash in 5% of patients, which is not reported in the literature. And I'm not saying that that happens. Right. I'm making a, a, a factitious example. Why would we not want to access that? Help our patients. Exactly. To, to actually improve the way we deliver care. And I've read about some organizations that are conducting studies where they're actually asking as they're, they're opting in through, IR, through the IRB right. Right. to say, we would like to get actually access your Facebook data. Right. And what's interesting is they found that a surprising number of people said, yeah, that's okay. Right. And then they also found that the data, that long, the additional affinity data that they're getting with that actually leads to a more robust profile of those, of those research no, and, participants. And it really reflects the fact that in Drug clinical trials, we use we study a very narrow select population, mm -hmm. which usually has only one associated disease, mm -hmm. while in the real world people have multiple other issues and are on multiple other medications. So I think there's there's a rich data resource there mm -hmm. that I think we get access quite comfortably. Right. As well as with Apple and Google, Google and, and other and all, Amazon at all. And knowing too that they're actually making aggressive moves to get into this marketplace and sort of erode a little bit of some of that that uh, the edges of where where you know it's not quite the application of health or the application of care. It's more of like trying to trying to shape good behaviors. What, no. As I mentioned yesterday, right? Well Facebook is using their algorithms now to detect when people are uh, potentially at risk for uh, being suicidal. Right. And they're trying to intervene. And I don't think that's problematic. I know people on the panel felt it was problematic, but I think it would be equally problematic if they had signals and didn't act, and someone had an episode of self-harm. Yeah, that is so true. That's a good point. And this question is so hard and so nuanced. And I don't think, and just like yesterday, we, we didn't come up with a firm no. answer either way. And it was interesting. We pulled people beforehand. We pulled people after. And it, it, there was slight variations. And, and I believe that some people from one end maybe moved from, yes, I trust Facebook, to no, I have no, to be I, more I, cautious. I, I think we won, Chris. I think we won. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, our, our, our three, our three, our three won. <laughs> well, I think we won by actually having the conversation as oh, you started well at the said. beginning. No, right? I, I, think, I think this would not have happened five years ago. Right. And I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I'll, I'm honestly, I'm really curious what we're going to have to debate next year. I, exactly. What's going to happen between now and next year? Exactly. Well, Ferris, this has been a great conversation. I really, I could talk to you all day long, and um, and whenever I do, I'd like love to put a camera. In, uh, I'm sorry, a microphone in front of in front of camera, us. please. Not a camera. Yeah, exactly. That's too intrusive. Uh, although Facebook does have those products now, nonetheless. If people listening in want to know a little bit more about you, uh, uh, what's the way that we they can follow you? I'm on Twitter at, at f a r r i s t i m i m i, and I'm I live on. Online. I'm always available. You certainly are, and that's for sure. And, and it's, it's a refreshing that you are, and always appreciate thank the conversations you, and all the contributions that you're making. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, many thanks to Ferris. I always love to talk with Ferris Reed. He's such a smart guy. And I mean, I could honestly, I could have just left the microphone going. And every conversation, regardless of what we talk about with him, is just really brilliant. Uh, whether it's, you know, about Facebook or it's about healthcare or it's about uh, perfumes, because he's really big into perfumes. He's just a really smart, smart dude. Fragrances. Fragrances. Oh, that's right. Not perfumes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, special thanks. Yeah, it's awesome. It's always fun to see Ferris when we when we go up to Rochester every year, if if not in between. So appreciate him. A couple of things before we before we wrap up the show. For those that have been uh, longtime listeners, you will know that at the end of every calendar year, we do a best of show uh, with user voted upon uh, awards. Things like best cold open, best episode topic, best guest expert, and the ever coveted top fan of the year award. Oh, yes. Be on the lookout for that. We'll have a, an online survey or poll or you know whatever you want to call it that we'll start pushing around and start gathering responses so we can build that show. And that's usually 
is it the last show of the year or the first show of the new year? I can't remember. But anyway, somewhere somewhere in that in that time frame. The annual touchies, as we like to call them. <laughs> actually, we don't call them that. I don't that, think we, call, we don't call them that. <laughs> I did actually at the most recent uh, conference I was at. I did. We we both ran into the biggest fan of of this year or of last year, I should say. Yes, uh, Mitch Holdwick. Yes, and uh, had a good conversation with him. He's he's such a good guy. Uh, I wonder who's going to win win the best fan this year. I don't know. I don't. Don't know, but uh, I'm excited to see. And uh, anyway, it's always fun to get everybody's feedback too on what resonated. So anyway, so be on the lookout for that. Again, the next conference we'll be at, uh, at least that we know of at this point, South by Southwest, which is way over in March. And so we're kind of wrapping up the conference season, as we've mentioned. And uh, just appreciate, love seeing everybody in person, but also appreciate the support online. Again, touchpoint.health. Rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, let's wrap it up here and uh, do a couple of recommendations. Reed, I'm going to recommend a TV show and a podcast at the same time. Uh-oh. Can I do that? All right. Well, we know we like cross media. So um, on HBO recently, I've been watching the three three episodes now of a season of The Watchmen. Oh, and I'm not okay. sure if, you, if you've heard about The Watchmen before. It was a very famous comic book. I guess back in the like 80s, I suppose, writ, uh, drawn by Alan Moore. Very, very famous 12-episode comic book series. It was almost – it's one of those comic book series that was kind of – that revolutionized the way comics were perceived. It really made it adult graphic novel style. It spawned a, a, a movie that was in the theaters about The Watchmen that was actually a, a – a movie dramatization of the comic books. Well, recently HBO started a series that was based on that called the Watchmen. It's set in the same universe, but it's different. It's um, a little bit later. The storylines have, have carried on. There may be some older characters from the comic books that are there, but it's really a whole new storyline uh, about a dystopian current day, I suppose directed by Damon Lindhoff. He's the guy who was part of lost one of the directors of Lost. He also did The Leftovers, another show on uh, HBO, which is really good. And I started watching the show. The three episodes of the season are really good. And then at the end of the third episode, it said, be sure to download the official Watchmen podcast, which is a supplement to the show. Damon Lind- Lindelof and, um, and another person, uh, Craig Mazin, who also directed HBO's Chernobyl series, kind of interesting they do a podcast about the series and it was a really interesting podcast too so nice. that's my recommendation this week uh the watchman television show and the supplementary official watchman podcast very cool well i'm going to recommend something a little bit different uh this only counts i guess if you have an ios device specifically a phone but there's a uh, screen time which has been there for a while right uh, so you can kind of go in and see your utilization and all that kind of good stuff. Well, if you have other people on your iOS or your uh, your iCloud uh, account, like family members, you guys should go in and set different utilization kind of guardrails. And so like with my kids, I can pick, you know, downtime and app limits and different things that need really granular with it. And so it's free. You used to have to like have apps to do these types of things, but it's really cool where you can uh, actually kind of keep track of, uh, you know, how they're using their devices and that kind of thing. So again, it's worth going back in, checking out uh, screen time and seeing if that's something that uh, would, would help your family. That's really cool. So I don't have children, but um, you could do it with also people that are in your family. So my wife and I have kind of toyed and, and teased each other about maybe we'll set screen time limits on one another. <laughs> That'd be great. Like during dinner time to say everybody's phone quits working and stuff like that. So it's actually not a bad idea. Um, well, cool. Well, great episode talking about Facebook. I loved having Ferris on and we uh, have a lot of great content in store. We've been able to capture some great interviews over the last few weeks, at these different conferences. So Appreciate the support and excited to uh, share some more of these uh, these interviews that are coming down the pipe. And so for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we will see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.